Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation on Biblicism. Okay, Scott, before we jump in to our conversation on Biblicism, uh, we've got an opportunity coming up next week that we're doing a webinar, uh, Culture and Goodness in the Church. Could you just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about why they should join us next week? Yeah. Um, one of the things that we're seeing right now, writ large in our culture, is racism. Racism is a culture. And one of the things that we've seen in churches in the last few years is sexual abuse, power abuse, and those things only occur because of culture. And so uh, my daughter and I have written a book that will come out in October called uh, A Church Called Tove, and it's about forming a goodness culture in the church that would uh, prevent any sort of power abuse or sexual abuse happening. I'm not we're not idealistic or utopian, but um, I think if churches begin to focus more on goodness, the Hebrew word is tov, if they start to focus more on tov, um, I think we can form cultures that will be safer and cultures that will be better. And that's what uh, I'd like to talk about next week. This is such an important conversation to be having, and so we hope that you're able to join us live on Wednesday, June 24th at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time to join our webinar live. And so you'll be able to have the opportunity to ask Scott maybe a question that you have about this topic and um, be able to engage with us live during that time. If you're listening to this podcast and it's already past June 24th, just go ahead and register at the link and uh, you'll be sent a, a replay of our conversation that we have, but we really hope that you're able to join us. But today we have a conversation on Biblicism. And so Scott, help us understand this here. I guess maybe we should start with what is Biblicism and why are we talking about it today? Um, it's a very uh, good good question because we have, um, in the church, we have theology that is developing, for instance, Students that I encounter at Northern, like Karl Barth. Other students, like Jürgen Moltmann. Uh, I have a couple students who are reading Sarah Copley. And these are theological developments. Some of our students are Baptist. Some of our students are Free Church. Some of our students are African-American Baptist. So we have these traditions. And these traditions have theology. And these traditions shape how people read the Bible and what they think the Bible is actually saying. And then there's the Bible department, like me and now Mujay Gupta and Ingrid Farrow and Jason Guile in Old Testament. And we're trying to get people to read the Bible and to let the Bible play a decisive voice. And I like to call um, and we'll, we'll go through several terms and we'll talk more about biblicism here in a minute. But I like to refer to uh, going to the Bible first 
the Reformation slogan was sola scriptura, and I think that's a solid tradition and a solid category, but sometimes it means uh, things that I don't think it int is intended to mean. In fact, a lot of sola scriptura people um, don't pay any attention to John Calvin, Martin Luther, and they're the ones who framed, or that's, that's what we refer to as framing sola scriptura. Both of those were heavily influenced by the creedal tradition and the theological tradition of the church, Luther especially by Augustine, um, Calvin so too, but both of them used the church creeds. So I like to refer to prima scriptura, if we go to the Bible first. You know, it's only of the Bible that we say is inspired by God. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God, depending on how you translate it, breathed out by God, and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. We only say this about the Bible, though I, I know fully well that some people can get totally energized by reading one of the great theologians in the church. Uh, but we do speak about the Bible as a one-of-a-kind kind of book, that God was at work in our scripture in ways that he was not at work in ordinary books that we read. This is why Kevin Van Hooser, um, in numerous writings, refers to scripture as the norming norm. It, uh, it norms our theology in a way that norms all of our norms. It, it tells us this is the way we are supposed to think. And I like to uh, talk about the Bible being truth because God speaks in Scripture. And so it's not uncommon for me to talk about Psalm 119. And even in Paul's, I mean, the, the writer says, Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is the truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances endures forever. If you just trace that word truth in Scripture, God is true, God revealed himself in Jesus Christ is true, the gospel is truth, and the witness of Scripture is to that truth so that the, the witness of Scripture is, for Christians, the true witness about the truth. And so we have to, we have, to have a special category for Scripture. And its role in our in plain theology, and um, as a Bible professor, I feel this in in ways that sometimes my students don't. Um, I'm sitting here working hard on teaching students how to read Romans, and the next thing I know, they're talking about the latest fad in some systematic theology, which is fine, and I think that has to be done. But I'm trying to form, whether successfully or not, students who will take their first instinct and go to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say? Mm -hmm. the covenant, when I was with the Covenant people at North Park, they said, where is it written? This is a fundamental question that can be called prima scriptura or sola scriptura. So, so let, me, let me just summarize this. Then. I believe... Uh, that we challenge systematic theologians 
and theology, the theological tradition, by saying, is this taught in scripture? Well, the counter accusation is where we want to go next, Jazz, because many times the theologians accuse Bible people of biblicism. And I want to, I want to look at that. So. Yeah, that's where we're going today. And, you know, this is a, this is kind of the, the next step in our conversation that we had that you're working on that book with the five things, um, a biblical scholar would hope a theologian would know. And then um, another guy is writing the the other side of that. Um, but for me and hearing, you know, you set up our conversation today, we've talked about this before, but uh, I come from a movement of churches called the Restoration Movement. And um, this is something that is very key and, and central um, to to what makes up the identity of of our churches. And one of the phrases that's very common is no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, which I think I, I, I know what you would have to say to that, but I would definitely like all of the things that you've laid down and going to the Bible. But what would you have to say to that? Really, it's ironic because it is kind of a creed that, that a lot of restoration movement churches will hold on to. But how do you see that playing in th- this kind of idea of biblicism that, that you've brought today? Chaz, that is, that is one of the major versions. I think there's only two major versions of biblicism, and I want to get to those. But that, that is um, one of the most common instincts of, let's say, Bible churches, conservative evangelical churches, non-denominational churches, churches that don't want to get into Presbyterianism or Methodism, but they want to be independent and above. Yeah. And outside that, they just want to study the Bible in an ecumenical way. And so they they do make this statement, no creed but Christ, no... No no book but the Bible, yeah. No book but the Bible, okay. Now, let me let me define biblicism. Yeah. The, first, the first usage is, I would call it kind of a loose usage, and I've used it, and I think it's been very helpful in the conversation about what is an evangelical. David Bevington... Um, I think he's Scottish, but maybe he's English. Uh, but he did teach at Sterling, and he also teaches at, at Baylor Truett. David Bevington defined evangelicalism in its ecumenical worldwide movement as something that is biblicistic or has biblicism, crucicentrism, conversionism, and activism. Let me define the other three terms. It believed that everybody had to be saved and have a personal faith. It believed that the cross of Christ is the central message. It believed in evangelism and social activity. And its root is biblicism, and what he meant by that is the centrality of the Bible. Well, this is very commonly used as as the meaning of biblicism, but there is another sense in which it was used, it has been used, and it is an accusation against Bible people like me who will say to Hans Porzma, that's a nice idea, but where is it taught in the Bible? And the accusation can be turned around, well, that's biblicism, and it's right where you are, Chaz. Does that mean no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible? And so I want to, I want to talk a little bit about this accusation because many times it, it unfolds into something like bibliolatry. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, no, and nobody wants to be guilty of that. 
and and then the next thing you know is that we're we're wondering what role does the Bible play in this debate? And th- this is this is the this is the issue right here. Let me uh, let me describe what happened in my backyard one day. Where I sit to read in our back room, there's a window, and outside that window is a hummingbird theater and a birdhouse. And last year, the chickadees, the last couple of years, the chickadees have made a wonderful nest in there. And they come back and they refurbish their nest. And then they have uh, eggs in there again. Well, this year, a wren showed up. And a wren thought that it deserved that house. And so it promptly went in after inspecting everything, going in the tree and looking around to see if it's safe, it promptly went inside that birdhouse and took out everything that chickadee had put in there and tossed it on the ground so that the chickadee would know that that home is no longer the chickadee's home, but it's for the wrens. Okay, here's what I want to say, is that there was already a wonderful bed, a, a wonderful home already made for the wren. Now, of course, I understand birds enough. They want to make their own, and they, no two birds make the same nest. But he wanted that whole thing emptied before, or this wren did, before setting up shop. And this, I think, is what happens with many biblicists. I call it theological anarchism, is that it wants to empty the brain of everything that it has learned and just go back to the Bible and have a brand new experience, as Marcus Porter once said, sort of like reading the Bible as if for the first time. Mm -hmm. And that means they have to bracket off the theological tradition, everything they've learned, no more creeds, no more Reformation, no more Augustine, no more Luther, Calvin, Edwards, no more Wesley. We're just going to read the Bible. No more Bart, no more Moltmann, just going to read the Bible alone. Mm-hmm. I call that theological anarchism because it's a disrespect toward the great tradition of the church that has learned to read the Bible in a faithful way. Not that it is infallible. No one's interpretations of Scripture are infallible. Yeah. But it, it does want to start all over again. And that is. The very thing that Christian Smith, in his book called The Bible Made Impossible, mm-hmm. examined um, and really pushed hard against the way many evangelicals read the Bible. By, by your method, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible. And you know as well as I do from your own tradition that if you were to wonder aloud in a church, if we ought maybe to baptize babies, you would no longer have the job the next Sunday or maybe by Monday morning. But Christian Smith points us to ask this question. If, if the Bible alone is sufficient, why do we differ so much on church polity? And I'm going to fill in some blanks that he didn't fill in, but I think he would agree with me. We have Presbyterian church government. We have Episcopalian church government. We have free church government. We have Baptist. We have Roman Catholic. We have Plymouth Brethren. 
We have independent Christian churches. We have churches of Christ. For instance, in the churches of Christ, nobody, uh, that the senior pastor is not called a pastor. He's called a, usually a teaching minister. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have that in the Christian churches as well or not. It's it's less pronounced, but it's it's definitely yeah, it's definitely there. And so, if we can just go back to the Bible, which one of these are we going to choose? And why isn't the Bible clear on the, on whether elders and bishops or overseers are the same thing? What about baptism? Does the Bible teach immersion? Does it teach Trying immersion, where you baptize three times, Father, Son. Does it teach pouring? Does it teach sprinkling? Should adults or infants be baptized? Does the Bible teach predestination the way some Calvinists teach it, or is it softer? Does the Bible teach that we should follow the Sabbath? Does the Bible actually say that slavery is wrong? Uh, and yet, does anyone believe in slavery today? Uh, what does the Bible say about wealth and poverty? We can go on and on. War. Charismatic gifts, atonement theory. Uh, Paul, Almost as endless, really. <laughs> yeah, Paul, is it the old perspective? Is it the new yeah. perspective? Is it the apocalyptic view? Is it participation? Is it post to Okay, if the Bible is clear, the Bible alone, let's say no creed but Christ, uh, no book but the Bible, why don't we agree more often? All right, now, how do we, how do we deal with this? Well, Christian Smith, actually examined this, and he began to uh, sort of map out why people disagree. But um, you could blame deficient Bible readers, and I think that's what a lot of people say. Well, if they were really good, mm-hmm. and they knew the context, and they knew the history, and they knew the Greek, and the Hebrew, and the Aramaic, they would all have my conclusion. Well, you know something? I live in a world of people who know all those things, and we disagree as much as the pastors have disagree and the lay people disagree. They probably more because of knowing that. I, I just want to interject before you go on with Christian Smith. I, I find it interesting because I don't know if this is consistent with all of evangelicalism and, and what you're talking about. But I know at least for the restoration movement and intention is that it was to to do those things to focus only on the Bible to so to use your metaphor to clear out the the nests that have come before so that we all can be unified so that we would come together and if we all did have perfect perfect interpretation or hermeneutics then we will all be unified which is is obviously not been the thing that has happened or or, or seems to happen which is I don't know it, it, it it's fascinating but it, it's clearly observable. Yeah, it is. I mean, I and I and I agree. I've I've paid attention to those people, and it makes me wonder if the Bible is to be interpreted that way. In fact, I'm pretty sure well, the way I would say is the Bible is not interpreted that way. In your tradition, mm-hmm. you have some very strong non-expressed traditions that get expressed when you vary from them mm-hmm. in the Anglican tradition. There's the same things that I'm in. I know we, we both go to a, uh, I teach and you go to a Baptist seminary. And the Baptist students have traditions that influence them. And this is what I'm exploring in this chapter and this section on biblicism is how do we relate to these. Yeah. Uh, we, could, we could just say, 
human beings, because they're fallen, can't interpret scripture in, in, uh, properly. Well, that's just that's just like, that's given up. Because why then did God give scripture to, to humans that aren't going to interpret it well? Is that really fair? Or you could blame God and say, God, you didn't make it clear enough. I, I've actually heard people say that. Hmm. Um, but some would say, you know, there's ambiguity in the Bible, and we have to embrace that ambiguity. And when we embrace that ambiguity, we're not going to spend our time fighting about having just one view of how to run a church, but we can have multiple views of the church. Now, here's what's interesting. I think Christian Smith's book is a really timely, important book because it presses right into a part of the church that is alive and well. This biblicistic Christians. Marcus Bachmiller, I think, said there's, there's 10 biblicists for every one more, more expansive model, uh, more theological model. And I don't know if he's right. And I'm not quite sure that's exactly how he was framing it. But there are a lot of people who are this way. And they think what they see in the Bible is exactly what is said. So Christian Smith comes in and says, you know, you can't, you can't get to where you want by your biblicistic approach. You're not going to get the unity of the church that way. Now, Christian Smith grew up in evangelicalism, went to Gordon-Conwell, and then he has become, since about the time that book was coming out, he was moving toward becoming a Roman Catholic. And he's now teaching at Notre Dame, and he is a Roman Catholic. Hmm. So, in a sense, he was saying, look, I found the evangelical tradition and its biblicistic approach to reading the Bible, especially in sermons every Sunday morning. And if you go to different churches, you would hear a lot of different theologies in play. He, he said, I, I, I've lived in this experience, and I don't think it does what it needs, and we need to have a theological tradition shaping it. Now, here's what's interesting. Some of the Reformed folks were really irritated with Christian Smith. And they criticized him. And one person who did is a really well-known, astute, erudite, leading voice among Reformed named John Frame. Kevin Dion also responded in very much the same way. But Frame, um, Frame, John Frame was very critical of Christian Smith's approach. As I read Christians, as I read John Frame's response, I have to say this. I thought to myself, you know, the reason John Frame can be critical of Christian Smith and his critic criticisms of the biblicistic approach is because John Frame is a really strong Reformed theologian, and so is Kevin DeYoung. And therefore, when they read the Bible, they're reading it through the lens of their Reformed theology, which they think, God bless them, is biblically based. And therefore, they want to defend biblicism against Christian Smith, but they're closer to what Kevin Van Hooser and, let's say, um, David Bevington means by biblicism. So there are two definitions of biblicism, and I think guys like Frame and Kevin DeYoung can criticize Christian Smith and say that's because those people are such 
bad interpreters of the Bible. And Christian Smith would say, that's the very point. And they are numerous because they rely solely on the Bible. And I think Christian Smith would say to John Frame, I appreciate what you have to say. You're not dealing with the problem I'm seeing. And what I would say to you is, you have a wonderful biblical approach to theology that is shaped by the theological tradition. So, my contention is this, Jess, and then we can sort of open this up for your questions and um, other questions that we can think of. My contention is, Biblicism as defined by Christian Smith is a genuine, realistic problem, and that without a theological tradition, guiding us and constraining us, we will end up in theological anarchy rather than in the great tradition of the church. Uh, in a sense, that's a circle. If we assume the great tradition is our wise and our wise guide, is the church's wisdom, then and we let it shape us, then we're going to find it as well. Okay, this does not mean that the biblical scholar can't challenge some theological traditions, because they do. And I think that's important. But biblicism as a method, without respect and constraint by the great theological tradition of the church, wants to start all over again and misses the wisdom of the church and dissects the church into multiple organizations, divides the church, mm -hmm. rather than unites the church. So, I think that Biblicism is something that needs to be critiqued. It needs to be seen for what it is. Christian Smith's book, The Word Made Impossible, um, I think that's what it's called, um, is for me um, a guiding light for helping us see the problem. And I think we have to work out with theologians together the best way of reading the Bible in a way that respects the church's tradition and yet challenges that tradition as well. That's that's really good. I know I'm definitely interested to go check out Christian Smith's book. Uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, Scott, you said Word Made Impossible is th that resource. Yeah. Yeah. The Bible Made Impossible. Why Biblicism is not a truly evangelical reading of Scripture. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I think my question would be, as we are now in a postmodern world, how much of postmodernism do you think has influenced the critique of Biblicism in understanding that and, and realizing that objective truth isn't necessarily always maybe what we thought it would be in, in the interpretive process? Well, postmodernism has a variety of definitions, but yes, let's just say that it is connected to the denial of meta-narrative and the necessity of recognizing local realities and the influence of the subject on the object as the reader reads the Bible. The reader is looking for things that shape what the Bible reader finds. It's not just what the Bible says, but what the Bible reader is looking for. Yes. I think that this is a challenge to Biblicism, and this is why we need the wisdom. Mm. And I think that postmodernism helps us here, mm. is that we need the wisdom of listening to other readers of Scripture. Yeah. Because uh, I just I was just reading something by Daryl Bach from Dallas Seminary, 
And Daryl Bach talks about we have to learn to read the Bible in conjunction with others in the community of faith in the church with other churches so that we hear what they hear, see what they see, rather than just what we see. They open up our minds. Um, listen, we, we are in right now in a very tense moment in American history over racism. And it is a fact that African Americans read texts in the Bible. Not all, I mean, I'm not going to stereotype that way. But that as a general rule, African Americans can see things in the text that white Americans don't see. If we white Americans ignore African American readings mm -hmm. of Scripture, we do ourselves a disservice. We prevent the church from genuine unity, and we don't welcome our brothers and sisters at, to the table for what they hear from Scripture. I know in my experience, I have learned tons from Brian Blount in his book, Ben the Whisper, Put on Flesh, and uh, I just recently read a wonderful book of his about the book of Revelation called Can I Get a Witness? Hmm. <clears throat> and I found his reading of Revelation to be one that, I mean, he overtly says, I'm reading to see how the African-American tradition uh, can be enhanced by reading Revelation. And he challenges white readings of Scripture. He challenges the dominant culture. And when he does so, he, he opens up our eyes to things in the text that we, I think, the white tradition ignores. Yeah. And so uh, this is where postmodernity is helping us read Scripture by saying, look, we are influenced by our world and by our, let's just say, our presuppositions, by our worldview, by our mindset, whatever you want to call it. We, that influences what we see in the text. If it influences us, it influences others. And therefore, we can help ourselves by hearing what other people from other worldviews are seeing in the text. And we can expand our reading of Scripture. So when uh, Joe Modica and I co-edited preaching the Book of Romans with Erdman's, one of the things I was hoping to show was that there were four diverse ways of approaching the Apostle Paul and Romans, but there is significant overlap, and there is. And we are now working on another book like this that will take into consideration other voices. And so I, I think we really need to recognize, I mean, I, I read Michael Gorman and I say, I learn a lot from this guy. I'm not totally convinced of the participationist approach. I also read Douglas Campbell and Beverly Gaventa and J. Lewis Martin and J.C. Becker and Ernst Kazema. And I read them, I think, oh, that's, that's really good. And I read the old perspective of Stephen Westerholm, and I think, I, I agree with some of that. And I read the new perspective. I think we can learn from one another and build a larger portrait rather than just the one from our tribe. Mm -hmm. And that's why Biblicism doesn't work. We have to listen to different voices because we will hear the gospel in different ways at different times. 
Yeah. And that's, I think when we take a posture like that, then we're actually doing and, and becoming more like the ends that the, the authors of the New Testament, the whole Bible are really aiming to achieve is unity and yeah. diversity and no one, not one monolithic voice, but a collection yeah. of different voices from different backgrounds testifying to the truth of who Jesus is and um, what experience in his kingdom is like. So, yeah. well, we are we are about out of time. Any closing thoughts to wrap up our, our conversation today and send us away with? Well, I don't want to devalue the, the one definition of biblicism, that it is characteristic of evangelicalism to be fully committed to the Bible and daily Bible reading. But on the other hand, I like Christian Smith's categories that biblicism is something that when used improperly, no creed but Christ, no book but the Bible, it never happens because even most people have a tradition and we need to value the tradition because of the wisdom it gives us as we read scripture. So biblicism in the second sense as an adequate method uh, needs to be criticized and we need to develop a more expansive method of reading scripture. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, thanks, Scott, for joining us. And thanks, our listeners, for being with us. I hope as you kind of think about what it means to to really be faithful to the scriptures and bring in other voices and learn from other voices. I think we've talked about so many um, really helpful, valuable things around that area. So we're grateful that you joined us today. And we look forward to continuing our conversation next time as um, we continue to talk on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.